0: You're just dealing with the consequences of your own actions, right? But somehow, Jesus coming into the picture elicits in them a confidence, not of their own, not of the people around them, but a confidence in Jesus that they think, I have to cry out. I have to express my need. I think this flies in the face of what I would call neo Stoicism. Stoicism is on the rise, I think, culturally amongst young men. We hear a lot about this, that there's just new guys, whether it's YouTube or TikTok or whatever, who are repackaging ancient Stoicism for men today to say, shove down your feelings and produce great things. And I think it's reactionary, because the other side of our culture is Every feeling you have is who you are. And nobody should ever disagree with or challenge your feelings. That's the other side of it, isn't it? Right? So we have on one side all those who revere, almost deify every feeling. And so what's the natural response to that pushback? Feelings are worthless. Shove them down. That's stoicism. Nah, that's not fair. That's not an accurate picture of true stoicism. But I think that's kind of the cultural pressure that's happening today. Here we have men who are in the presence of Jesus and feel that it's appropriate to cry out. So what's their cry? The rest of verse 27 tells us this. Here's what they cry out. Have mercy on us, son of David. Here, these blind men, in the context of Matthew's Gospel, are able to see rightly the true identity of Jesus when the religious leaders of the time are not. Why is that? Why can two blind men see Jesus with more accuracy than the scholars and the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the time? What's the difference between those two groups? Need. What they can see first, even in their blindness, is their need. They need a Savior. Do the religious leaders need a Savior? They don't think so because they've got a system. They've got a system that they can trust in. They've got efforts that they're able to put forward. Does the blind man feel like he has effort to put forward? All he has is what he recognizes as lack. And somehow this sets them up to make them able to see Jesus clearer than those who have physical sight. Isn't that profound? So the darkness of their life provided them with the focus and sensitivity to see the true light dawn in the world in their own spirits. So here's the good news of this. In the presence of Jesus, it's appropriate to bring your full need. The fullness of your need, to bring it into the moment and to look at the truth of who Jesus is. That claim, have mercy on us, son of David, is ascribing to him that he's the promised Messiah. He's the one that they've been waiting for. And so it's right to be honest about your need when you're in the presence of the true promised Savior. Right? Right? Isn't that the appropriate time to be fully honest about your need? So here's this picture. Even in the darkness of your situation and your circumstances and your life, it's appropriate to come to the gathering of the church and cry out for mercy from the Son of David. And sometimes you need to close your eyes to see him. Sometimes you just got to say, all this mess and all this drama and all this worry and anxiety and intensity of this world, I just got to close my eyes to all of this so I can see him. It attunes your senses to something greater, doesn't it? You ever do that? You're just like, I just need to close my eyes so I can see Jesus. Verse 28, here's Jesus' response to their cries. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him. Here's what this tells us. The first thing is this. Jesus' response to their cries is nothing. Jesus keeps walking. So they're following him, crying out, have mercy on us, son of David, and Jesus keeps walking. Isn't that complicated? So, Jesus lets them keep following him and crying out. The second thing is, Jesus didn't turn around or change his course. The third thing that we see is that Jesus arrives at his intended destination and goes in the house. Now, we don't know whose house this is, but it's interesting to notice because this is a common theme through the book of Matthew where does Jesus do so much of his work? In houses. We've spent lots of weeks highlighting this. He goes to Peter's house, heals his mother-in-law, he goes to Matthew's house, he goes to other people's houses, and he changes things from inside the family. It's a beautiful picture. So what we then gather from this situation, though, is that the blind men just keep coming, and they're calling to Jesus from outside the house, because I don't think this is their house. Why is Jesus so aloof? Do you ever feel like Jesus is aloof sometimes? Verse 30 tells us Jesus is looking for a level of secrecy. Right, That whole part where he warns them sternly. That's an interesting word. Matthew says Jesus warns them sternly, sternly to keep it quiet. So what we can draw from this is that Jesus is looking to bring them away from the public square and the crowds. His desire seems to be to meet with them in a deeply personal way. Let's get away from all the noise. Follow me. In their blindness. So imagine that moment. They're walking, making their way through the village, crying out to Jesus in their desperation, and Jesus is just walking, and they're continuing to seek after him. Boy, if that doesn't summarize how I feel Some weeks coming to church. I don't know if anything does. So here's what's happening, though. As a church, when we gather together publicly like this, Jesus is working deeper to pull you somewhere private. Deep within. So we need this. We need the public. We need the gathering. We need to be together. There's a common kind of push in our culture today that seems to think, I can just be with Jesus one on one. But Jesus calls us into this gathering. But here, he's doing a deep work within each individual that's unique to what's going on within you. Are we thankful for that? It's better than a one size fits all, right? So, last week and the week before, we kind of looked at what's our common liturgy, right? Our order and structure to how we worship together. But now it's also to see in that structure is this individual piece where in the midst of this, Jesus is working within you. And this is the place of belovedness, of deep personal value. It's not for the attention of the crowds, and this is one of the things we have to consistently see about the character of Jesus, is he is not looking for fame. He doesn't need it. He's not looking for public affirmations. He doesn't need it. Jesus is not insecure chasing after notoriety. And yet, Jesus is the most famous person in human history. Isn't that fantastic? So the reason, he's not insecure, he doesn't need the acolytes or, or the adoration of people. Instead, he's looking for individual moments. And he's not trying to make a scene because he's doing the real work. Isn't that what we want as a church? This isn't a gathering to get good pictures for Instagram. We want the real work. The union with Jesus and the transformation of the human soul. Is that what we want? We need real infusion of resources to live another week, right? We need the real work. So here what we see is that Jesus' high priority is to pull them aside, to pull them alone, and that happens in the midst of our gathering. Jesus is working in you. To bring your greatest needs into contact with his greatest accomplishments. Isn't that wonderful news? So here, we're honest, we're raw, we're willing to go to those deeper places to meet with Jesus. Now, this gets complicated. we We have a group gathering, but we also have this sense that Jesus is meeting with us individually, and we want to express that. So how do we balance in our worship, the congregational nature of us being together and the personal worship experience? Okay, I think that's helpful to consider that. I remember one time coming into a new church, and the worship—I was really meeting with Jesus, and so I put my hands out in this like receiving body posture. Jesus, I want more of you. And a guy behind me poked me in the back and said, not here. That was a little shocking. So I actually respected the chastisement of the moment. I was in my 20s. So afterwards I asked, I'm like, is that not okay for me to put my hands like that? And they're like, we don't do that here. There's no room for individuality. Right? So there's this balance of like congregational needs but how does the individual express that? On the other side I went to another church and we were guests there Um, my dad was actually the preacher the guest preacher and we went as a family and we're standing in the front and I, I was on an aisle seat and a lady came out with flags. She's flagging. And hit me in the back of the head. Just whacked me, hair standing up. I turn around like, how? And she, and she looks at me and she goes, and she just flings her flag in my face and kept going. And I was like, wow, I, I was uncomfortable and I, I guess I'll take that as an apology. I, I, I do not understand that. I guess at least she's focused and committed on her worship. So I turn back around and try to focus on Jesus again. And then whack, I got hit again. That's so why I, I, again, I'm young, and I, I, I don't want to be confrontational, so I just kind of turn around and went, you, you hit me in the head? And she goes, it happens. <laughs> okay. I guess it happens. So, on the, so in, in one breath, we, we have church experiences that go there's no room at all for the individual. And then on the other side of things, there's only room for the individual and who cares who that impacts and how that affects people. Does that seem balanced? All right. so I realize that churches are complicated places. I went to another church where a guy was worshiping with a Braveheart sword and I couldn't help but think, that doesn't seem fa- safe. <laughs> Swinging a sword around like he was cutting demons in half or something. It's not really one I've seen in the New Testament, but Teach their own, I guess. But then, so we have all these kind of different extremes that take place. I mean, I've had other churches where there's like a rogue lady in the, audio, in the congregation with a tambourine. And she would just cut in and go, it's time for this song, and start tambourining and singing a new song. So how do you control all that? Too many factors, too many things going on. So many local customs. I remember bringing a young guy to church for the first time. He's like, I think I'm ready to hear about Jesus. He walks in with a hat. An older man walked up behind him and ripped the hat off his head, and he said, not in the Lord's house. The young man took his hat, walked right out that door, and didn't come back. But These are the types of extremes. Do any of these things serve the worship of Jesus? Not helpful. But what we see in the scriptures and in the tradition of the church, is that it is meant to involve our bodies. Our worship is meant to be expressed. In our, if you go through the Psalms, the amount of physical expressions that are listed there, if you go into the traditions, even the Anglican liturgy, the amount of times we stand or sit, kneel, all of those things are using the body to worship, Right? So what we want is this kind of balance to go congregationally we're together. We want our worship to be about Jesus and for Jesus. But we also want this awareness that he's doing a deep inner, personal work, right? And we want to give that our focus and our intentional reception of Jesus there. And we want to do it in a way that doesn't impede somebody else's worship. Right? We don't want to intentionally do something that's going to distract someone else. I find that hard in modern church contexts, where the camera's like right in your face and suddenly your, worship is, your face is on the screen and you got to pretend you're worshiping harder. Those are awkward moments. We don't want to do those things that, that wrongly emphasize the individual or impact other people. But we just want some kind of honesty and courtesy, don't we? Like if somebody's having a deep moment with Christ and is weeping, we treat that with care, wouldn't we? And so part of it is to go, we're not going to stare at somebody who's crying a lot, or go, oh, are you okay? Because we know Jesus is doing deeper works, right? So we don't want to overemphasize it or make them uncomfortable about it. We just want to know this is going to happen. It should happen, and we're going to cover and protect you as it does. Just like when Jesus talks about lust in the Sermon on the Mount, he puts the onus on the individual to go, it's your job, your responsibility, not to lust after someone else's body, right? doesn't matter what they're wearing, you've got to be responsible for your own heart. The same is true in the worship of the churches. to go, I'm responsible for my attentions. And if somebody's worshiping in a way maybe it's not my style or my comfort level, I'm going to give my attention Where? To that person? Am I? No. Where am I going to give it? I'm going to give that to Jesus. So we treat it with a discretion and a carefulness because here's a person meeting with Christ. And maybe their expression isn't the best way or the most mature way, but it's happening, isn't it? And so we want to find that place of both. Now, Jesus goes on. Here's where he addresses the two men do you believe that I am able to do this? So here's the thing. They're seeing Jesus rightly. They're persevering and following him. And now Jesus presses them even deeper. Do you believe in me? You've called me the son of David. You've called me the Messiah. But do you believe it? Do you trust that I can do this and that I will do this? It kind of pushes us to the question to ask, haven't these men proved their faith enough? Haven't they? Haven't they persevered enough? I think so. So then what is Jesus doing? What's the purpose of this question? He's saying go deep to the true self. Beyond even the need to the heart. Where's your trust? Where's your confidence? What are you holding to? Do you really believe in me? And I, I think that's a deep question that has to be asked. And worship does this. We sing or proclaim a truth about Jesus, and it's meeting with our need. And we go, ah, oh, I feel so alone, like I'm missing God, and I don't know where he is. And are you, are you going to take care of me? Are you going to love me? Are you going to forgive me? All of these needs are coming out, and we're singing these truths, In the midst of all of it, Jesus is going all the way to the heart to say, can you believe in me for all of this? Do you trust me? And that's what happens in our worship, doesn't it? Our need collides with the truth, and then faith. Faith springs up in us. We see his faithfulness, and his faithfulness creates faith in us. Isn't that the truth of the gospel? His faithfulness creates faith in us. I think this is what we're seeing in our church. Amongst our men, but amongst all of us, is this honest need meeting the once and for all time truth of the gospel and true faith in it, trust in it, dependence on that's legacy in our kids. Marshall, you should have warned me you were going to do that today with Elise because it got me in the feels and I wasn't sure I was going to be able to come up here and preach. But that beautiful combination of Marshall singing and Elise reading the scriptures oh, isn't that what we want? Isn't that what we're trying to do? Is go with our kids, here's my desperate need, but here's the goodness of the gospel. And here's how I'm trusting in Jesus. Not holding to the rules, but holding to faith. Verse 29. Then Jesus touched their eyes, saying, according to your faith, be it done to you. Look at those combination of things. He touches their eyes. So it's the personal touch. Isn't that the very thing that we're looking for in worship? My need, his truth, and then his touch. Where you feel like that truth hits you, covers you, washes over you. And Jesus says that according to your faith, be it done to you. Notice how Jesus uses his sovereignty. He actually doesn't need their faith to heal them, but he honors it. According to your faith, be it done to you. The thing that you trusted for is the thing given, he's saying here. And so in our worship, when we come to Jesus honestly, and we see him rightly, we receive abundantly. But always abundantly? Verse 30 goes on, And their eyes were opened where they get to see in their life what they were already seeing in their spirits. Their spiritual, the reality that we saw in their spiritual life of seeing Jesus rightly and being honest about their need, we now see it in the physical. So the answer then to our, very, our every need and our every prayer is ultimately going to be answered In Jesus himself. So here's the thing. When we bring our need and we see the truth and the promises of the gospel and then he touches us with the reality of going, can you feel it to be true? Know it to be true? Can you hold it? Then the answer to all our needs and all our prayers takes a tangible expression at his table. It's a pattern for what we hope to see in our lives. Humble circumstances, like humble bread, becoming the miracle of God's provision. So all the questions, does God care? Am I alone? Will God help me? Can I truly be forgiven? Will I find new strength? At his table, Jesus answers, with real bread and real wine that you can taste, and the presence of His real self. That's the gift. That's what's on offer. That ultimately, every need and every prayer is answered in the death of Jesus. All resources and need for strength is answered in the resurrection of Jesus. And we see that that's true and hold it by faith and taste it in our mouth. We step out into the world again going, I have what I need because I have Jesus. Whether we see all the transformation we want to see in the now, we know that his transformation is coming. So here's how I think we hold that. I know people tend to go, if we can't believe that Jesus is going to heal every time we ask in the right now, why ask at all? What we want to do is we want to ask for it, trust that he answers exactly according to what we would want if we knew what he knows. Okay? So here's how I think about my prayers for help. I'm asking for help you say you want to help me, then I trust you are helping me, whatever that looks like. Because I do know that one day, evil's going to be destroyed, sin is going to be powerless, and then eternity is coming. Heaven on earth is coming. And I know that my prayer will be 100% answered eventually. And in the meantime, you're going to give me everything I need to keep moving forward in you for now. Does that seem fair? So what it allows for is complete confidence. I ask for what I need now. I know that Jesus is given. I know that Jesus is available. I know that new strength is here. And one day, this is all going to be completely done. That's the good news. In worship, that's what happens. So, we come in the darkness of this world, honest about our need, knowing that Christ is going to meet us in the secret place of our hearts, and there we hold to Him in faith, and then touch His presence. Isn't that the vision for worship? where our need meets His provision in the reality of His presence and in the meal at His table.